Welcome to Liberating Race, a podcast from the Shift Network about race in the past, present, and transformational future. I'm Joy Donnell, and with the help of my co-host, Reverend Dr. Aaliyah Mahone and Jillian Shelley, in today's episode, we will explore how the idea of race and the very real application of racism was used upon people of the Jewish faith to create an extra layer of dehumanization and exploitation around their bodies. And we will talk about the transformational modalities that can help one heal from such dehumanization. Act One, Origins of Hate. Racial anti-Semitism, a form of racism and hatred against those of Jewish faith based on the assertion that Jewish peoples constitute a distinct race. The premise of racial anti-Semitism is distinct but can often be associated with religious anti-Semitism, which is prejudice against Jewish peoples on the basis of religious beliefs. In 1916, American zoologist Madison Grant published The Passing of the Great Race, which proposed a pseudoscience supporting eugenics to separate people into invented racial categories and favored white Christians over all others. Adolf Hitler praised The Passing of the Great Race and echoed its sentiments in Mein Kampf in 1925. On September 15, 1935, the German parliament passed the Nuremberg Race Laws, which identified a Jewish person as someone not with particular religious convictions, but instead as someone with three or four Jewish grandparents. These laws embodied many of the racial theories underpinning Nazi ideology. They would provide the legal framework for the systematic persecution of Jews in Germany during the Holocaust. Nazi racism would produce murder on an unprecedented scale, Source for materials provided by the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, Washington, D.C. Act Two, A Journey to Escape, A Journey to Heal. Our guest today in the Brave Race space is Cantor Judith Koppel Steele. She is one of the youngest Holocaust survivors alive today. As a small child, Judith was a passenger on the SS St. Louis, also known as the Voyage of the Damned. It was one of the last ships to leave Nazi Germany before World War II erupted. Aboard were 937 Jews who believed that they had a visa to enter Cuba and subsequently would be granted asylum in the United States. But authorities rejected their entry into Cuba and they were heartbreakingly turned away at the U.S. border and Canada as well. The ship was forced back across the Atlantic, where only four Western European countries received them as refugees. However, by 1942, all four countries had fallen under Nazi rule, and the passengers of the U.S. St. Louis were still trapped. In the months that followed, people were eventually interned where they were, or they were shipped out to the well-known camps. Today, Cantor Judith Steele is an interfaith minister and an active speaker for various organizations as well as schools and many places of worship. 
She feels that she has the responsibility to tell her story of survival for the good of future generations. Additionally, we have a guest host joining us today, our colleague, Phoenix Singer, who is also of Jewish descent. She is a senior copywriter for the Shift Network and a marketing strategist. She's also a presenter for the Human Awareness Institute and an activist. We will begin our sharing in the Brave Race space today with a reading from Judith's book, Love Brought Me Through the Holocaust, A Daughter's Memories. Dear Mom and Dad, it is difficult to imagine the anguish that you must have gone through after having to give me up on that evening in September of 1942 when you knew you were going to be taken on a train to Auschwitz to an unknown fate the following day. I know now the strength you must have had when you took me to the Ose that night before and left me there to live. The horror of not knowing what was going to happen to Opa, to me, and for that matter, to you. I, as a little girl of four, couldn't imagine, and all I wanted was for you to come back to me. Life would have been so perfect for the rest, for all of us. I understand now how much you loved me and how much courage it took for you to give me up. Dad, I remember how you were distracting me for a second and letting go of my hand and leaving. It was in that split second that my life changed forever. I waited in vain for you to return to me, but Maman was there for me and dried my tears. I never stopped waiting for you and Mom and prayed every day for you to come back to me. I never recognized the emptiness that I have been feeling in my life without you, as well as the unexplained rage. This is why I am finally writing this book. I believe that I am doing this to understand myself better, as well as getting in touch with that part of me which has been in pain and empty all my life. I used to ask myself, how did they go on the train? Did they get a seat? Did they actually get to Auschwitz? I hope they didn't suffer. What was they saying? What were they thinking? Did they worry about me? Probably. What about this lineup? Who goes where? Did they stay together in the end? I hope so, holding hands and lovingly gazing at each other. I asked myself, how come I lived and they did not? Writing this to you now, my beloved mom and dad, I understand a little more about myself. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for that great wisdom, the wisdom to make sure that your message will carry on through me, my children, my four grandchildren, as well as future generations. God was there to see that I survived, to tell my own story of survival, and impart my experiences for the sake of peace for all future generations. Everyone in the world should visit Poland and the camps to see firsthand what happened 
and to know that these atrocities actually happened. I truly feel that all parents, no matter what race, creed, or color, should educate their children about this horrific time in history. I love you forever. You're Judith. My goodness, Judith, as a parent myself, to hear this letter that you just wrote to your parents, oh my goodness, it touches my heart. Thank you for the reading that you just shared. It's an incredible beginning to our conversation. And I want to just ask you, can you tell us a bit more about your personal journey? I was born in February of 1938. It was then that the Nazis were starting to do programs. Jewish people were taken out of their homes, never seen again. In those days, there were concentration camps. The businesses were raided and synagogues were torched. And it was a difficult time. And I was very protected because at the time when they had all this, it was called Kristallnacht. At that time, I was only nine months old. I remember that later on, after Kristallnacht, my father was arrested. 30,000 Jewish men were arrested and put into prisons. My father was one of them. He was in that prison. It was called Fresnay-sur-Sarthe in French. He was there and he was let go on the condition that he and his family would have to leave Germany within eight weeks. And if they didn't leave Germany within eight weeks, the whole family would be arrested and put into concentration camps. So my father was released and they looked for some way to get out of Germany quick. They found a ship that was leaving Hamburg, Germany, and it was called the SS St. Louis. You must have heard about the St. Louis. It was called the Voyage of the Damned. Um, Judith, this is Phoenix, and I um, want to thank you for that. I, As you were reading, I could feel my heart breaking into a million pieces. So there was some of that, but you didn't know at the time some of that the story that you tell in that letter, that poem, that prose. And I'm wondering how that information was passed down to you um, when you were a bit older. I was eight years old when I came to this country. However, I do have memories of, of the Holocaust itself, all the things that happened. I didn't know about my parents until much later. I thought they'd come back to me. I gradually learned about the St. Louis, for instance. I was 14 months old when we were on that ship, and I have no recollection of it. I only learned about it from fellow shipmates who were older than I was. I was protected, but my main thing was that my parents were killed, and I didn't know about it, and I kept waiting for that. I found out about that when I was in America, when I came to live with my third set of parents. And they just said, well, your parents were killed, and they were killed in Auschwitz, and they, they were gassed. How do I remember everything? Well, from relatives, people talking to me, and I had certain facts, and they sort of elaborated. A little here and a little there, that's the only way I can put it. Yeah, 
Thank you, Judith, for that poem, especially. I'm, really, the word that's sitting with me is just the grace that you showed in that poem. And so for me, I'm sitting with this big gap in my heart that I feel between the atrocity that you experienced as a child and the wisdom that you carry now and the grace that you carry that wisdom with and the generosity with which you're offering it. And I'm wondering how did you develop that grace and that wisdom through the atrocities that you experienced in your childhood? And how did you come to so generously offer this book for us? Well, I was very disturbed as I was growing up because I was waiting and waiting for my parents to come back. And I had all these fears of rejection, abandonment, and I was always depressed. Even in my marriage, I was depressed. So I heard about meditation and I heard that meditation can change your life. You'll be a better person for it, and et cetera, et cetera. And so I happened to know that one of the schools in our neighborhood was teaching meditation. And I, as somebody who, was, who didn't know anything about it, and I'd heard just these wonderful things, I went. And I said to God, okay, prove it to me. Prove that you can change my life. Oh, and by the way, I was agnostic. I didn't really believe in God at the time. So I learned how to meditate. I was introduced to a famous guru who gave an initiation. And this was the beginning of that so-called, what you call it, grace, that feeling that's inside that we actually all have, that God dwells within you as you. And this was, was taught to me, but I still wanted to know, okay, show me. And he did. I learned how to play guitar and taught myself to sing and sang for audiences. And this started the, you know, the, that consciousness. And I learned to love myself, which is because of that God is within you. So you have to love God because he's within you. I started to sing for Jewish organizations and schools, and I told my story with my so-called show and gave a little bit of about the St. Louis. And so life became good. I really um, became a much happier person. It was all grace. You know, the one thing that I want to say is that in all of the research and the education that I've received about the Holocaust, in terms of the background of how all of that change happened in Poland and Germany and so on and so forth, is that Adolf Hitler decided that Jewish people were not a culture, not a religion, but a race. And so races had to be annihilated. Because if you were talking about a religion, you could just convert to a different religion. If you were talking about a culture, you could say that I'm leaving my culture behind. But if you're talking about the actual identity of your person and your being, that you are a Jewish race, then you are still going to remain a Jewish race no matter what changes that you make. And that was what was presented at the beginnings of the Holocaust, for people to understand that exterminating Jews 
needed to happen because the Jewish race was the problem. So anti-Semitism is a part of the work that we do around transforming race. I feel that my whole life was, that's why I'm alive. It was destiny. I was meant to live to tell my story in order to help the future generations, to give that kind of education to them. I was told many times, you don't look Jewish. So I said, how does a Jewish person look? I'm also an interfaith minister, and I used to perform wedding ceremonies all over the world. And once in Arkansas, I, I did an outdoor ceremony, and I went over to the young man who set up my microphone, and I thanked him. I said, I said, thank you so much. You helped me make a good ceremony. So his answer to me was, oh, you're welcome. I never seen a Jew before. <laughs> I just thought that was, you know, I did, this is something. They don't know what anti-Semitism, they don't know that they're, this is an anti-Semitic remark, wouldn't you say? I had a couple of people say that to me in California. And like you, I've always been to, people are always surprised when they hear I'm Jewish. You don't look at all Jewish. One other thing that I've encountered is that I met a friend who was in California from Germany for a year or two. And I knew her for quite some time before she, somehow it came up that I was Jewish. And her guilt, I mean, she's younger, even a little bit younger than I am. So she had nothing to do with the Holocaust. Her guilt, her apologies, she was so taken aback and basically got on her knees in apology for what her people had done. How do you think that phenomenon carries down to people who weren't even involved in it? I went on many trips because I was a passenger of the uh, SS St. Louis. And so I went on many trips of forgiveness. And there were Christian groups who invited us, a, a small group of uh, St. Louis survivors. And they took us first to, I think, to Canada. During the war, the Minister of Immigration, when he was asked, can you take in some Jews from the St. Louis? His answer was, none is too many. So Canada wanted to apologize. There wasn't a dry eye. I was, I was crying my eyes out because all these people were coming up and apologizing. Uh, the, there was somebody from Cuba who came and was crying and prostrated himself, begged me for apology. And we went to Florida, the same thing. And we went to Cuba, to finally to uh, Hamburg, Germany, where the ship took off from. And here we had a group of uh, uh, German Christians who bowed down to us also, asked for our forgiveness. That must have been really something. I'm so glad you had those experiences, and I hope that it's because of those people that it truly will never happen. Do we forgive or say, oh, yes. No, we, they, we, they reached my heart. How they spoke, I felt their sincerity. And I took it in. And it's very, very important 
for anyone who has a tragedy like a so-called tragedy like mine to be forgiving and see the God that's in them and understand that they're not in the same place and they still have to grow. I, I, it's just so, your heart is so massive <laughs> to hold back. And as I was saying, I, I just do hope that those people who are doing the forgiveness a couple of generations later are the ones that are going to ensure that the Holocaust and, and the extermination of Jews and the continuation of anti-Semitism does not happen again. I think it's amazing that you as an elder get to pass the story, not just the story of what happened to you in terms of the details and the data, but also the feelings and some of the recovery. I'm just interested in kind of the journey of your relationship with God. I, as a Jew, was raised by a very culturally Jewish parents, but um, my father was an absolute atheist. My relationship with God started out very confused. I had no Jewish education. And I, like you, started my journey with going to like Buddhist meditation groups and monasteries. What brought you back to Judaism? How did I get to believe in God? That's what you wanted to know. Well, I can speculate about why you didn't believe in God. Is it about, like, how can there be a God when such atrocities can happen? Yes, that was exactly it, you know. I know for myself, God made me live. I could have been killed three times or, or more, uh, but... God had plans for me, so he, she kept me alive. And I used to ask, why am I alive and they're not? You know, it, and there was a lot of anger there. At that time, uh, I was on antidepressants, couldn't get off them. It was impossible. I had very bad side effects. And the first time I went to, to the guru and give to give them something, you know, they take away what you don't need, you know. So I, I handed him the bottle of antidepressants, and he took it, and he was shaking it, looking at it. He says, are these sleeping pills? I said, no, they're antidepressants. And I went, huh, oh, okay, and he put it down. After he gave blessings to about 400 people, he took my bottle of antidepressants, looked at it again. Out of 400 people, he turned to me. He sent me a blessing through his eyes. I came home after that intensive weekend that we had. I was in total bliss for two weeks. And after two weeks, I was off the antidepressants, and I didn't have any um, uh, side effects anymore. You know, and so who could do this for you? Who's inside of us? God, and seeing everything around you, everything, everything is God. And once you get to see it as such, then you get more confidence and more joy, because the joy is already inside of you. All you have to do is go inside and feel it. If you see a mountain or valley, every blade of grass Every tree, the sky, everything is God. You know, I was going with the, my rabbi up to the mountains. He was also uh, interested in, in meditation. 
So we took a rest, you know, there was a rest spot. And he looked around, he said, look at this, look at all this beauty. Who made all this? God. I had trouble with my Jewishness. I think you asked me that about that before. I did, and I, I was very curious how then you found your way back to it. I had a problem. I learned how to meditate because I was a rebel and I was unhappy. And after I took my first or second intensive, which is a weekend of meditation, it's a workshop, I felt wonderful. It was the most wonderful, blissful experience. However, I started feeling very guilty because I was Jewish, but I was going away from Judaism. And I was torn. Here I, I was uh, getting involved with something that was like, like a Hindu religion. You know, a couple of weeks later, you know, I had been uh, leading a chant in one of the centers. All of a sudden, the, the head of the, of the meditation center, uh, she announced that Rabbi Gelberman was going to be at in Central Park. And Rabbi Gelberman was a good a friend of the gurus. So I said, I have to meet this man. I have to go to Central Park. This is where he was doing his service. Outdoors, uh, my guitar and I went there, and um, here we see. I saw this little man with a robe on, and he did a service. It was a Shabbat service, a Sabbath. He's what he said really resonated with what I learned from the guru, you know. And it, it was all making sense. And he was also saying, never instead of, always in addition to. So that it really made sense, because what I wanted, I wasn't going to leave either one. It's never instead of, and always in addition to. I came back to Judaism because uh, Rabbi, after I, I led a chant in Central Park, he came over to me and said, I like your voice. And I said, thank you very much. I said, I sing in Hebrew and Yiddish, too. Ah, <gasps> you do. Let's get together. I was very privileged to meet some very great people in, uh, because of him. So um, that's how I came back to Judaism. What I wanted to ask, because I have some of that experience having now joined the synagogue for the first time in my life, and so I wanted, what I wanted to ask is, does your connection with Judaism help you feel closer to your parents? Absolutely. I came to the ashram and I was, I was wearing a ring that belonged to my father. And uh, I asked the guru first to uh, bless the ring. And he went, ah, like this, you know, like he knew all about the ring. We were sitting in meditation. All of a sudden, while I was meditating, my finger, where my ring was, became hot. The whole thing was hot. And I felt that it was, it was the ring. And then I contemplated that. And it was like God was saying to me, nobody dies. Your parents are very much alive. And th this was one of the messages that I got directly from uh, God. Thank you so much for sharing that. I share that experience of feeling my father more around me now that I've put Jewish things around me. And I can only imagine how... A hundredfold, that must be for you. So thank you. 
Well, if you lost anybody, they're always there for you. I feel my parents' presence all the time, and I feel the presence of people that are very close to me in their previous life. I feel that they're there. I have a whole group of people around me, and, and I appreciate their protection, uh, sometimes their advice. I try to be a channel rather than somebody who says, okay, I'm doing it. I'm not the doer. When you meditate, you hear very clearly. God talks to us all the time. All we have to do is listen. So how perfect was that question and how perfect was your answer for the direction I'd like to take us? Because there's so many links here. One, you said that tragedy, trauma, and loss can lead to one's destiny and soul purpose. Then you just introduced that no one dies, that they're around us, that those who are no longer resident on earth are actually still resident within a spirit realm. People call it different things and that we're still linked to them because love never dies. And so I wanted to introduce into this conversation how loss can actually be a catalyzer. So I too, like you, have had a family member, my only child, my son, Sean, end his life through suicide. That was many years ago now, actually 27 years ago, to be exact. The work that I do, which is why we're having this conversation right now, the brave race space, liberating race, transforming racism, bringing forth the opportunity for us all to heal the planet so that every people, all groups, all religions, all skin colors, everyone can live here on the planet Earth together and have a good life. I do that work because my son inspired it in me, meaning that he left in 1994. And the quick version is, is that I couldn't believe that I actually got laid off from my very secure job only three months later after his death in July. I was very angry, upset, confused, all of those things. And when I sat, also I've been meditating since a very long time, since 1977. When I sat to say, how could this be happening to me? I started hearing the voices that this is time now for you to take your experience of healing and offer it to the world. First in healing grief and loss and being able to overcome trauma and then in healing the systems and the circumstances that exist in our world that give rise to those losses and that trauma. But the question that we ask, is healing racism is healing hatred a part of your soul purpose? I would answer yes, absolutely. Because we're told that the whole world is one. Some people don't know it yet, unfortunately. That's why we have the cruelty and the, you know, the wars. We have to spread the word. If we have to do it one by one, it's like you know, many waves going into the ocean. The whole world is one. We are one. You are me and I am you. And once we get that, then the healing comes. Your son is with you, no matter what. My parents are with me, no matter what. I know it. And when you know it on a really deep level, you'll understand it. You understand it. 
there's a way that these messages that we're talking about that we've received and that all people have the ability to receive them, and mostly we do, sometimes people don't act on them. They hear the words, they hear the messages, but they don't act on them. Right after my son's passing, I went to an unlearning racism workshop. I had kept talking to the organizers throughout the weekend, and I told them I was very interested in working with them. And they hadn't invited me, but I told them that I was because I was hearing inside that you're going to work with these people, you're going to work with these people. And so they said, Aaliyah, would you like to do a closing ritual for us for our workshop on Sunday evening? It was around 6 o'clock p.m. when we were done. And I said, sure. I used to conduct rituals all the time. Spiritual-based teachings and rituals and all of that was definitely my thing and had been my thing for many years since I started my path in 1977 to pursue spirituality. Um, and so I decided that I would put people in a circle and I would invite them to pray with me, but to pray that all of the young people who had lost their lives would come and join our efforts so that we could heal the breaches and the divides between people. And I asked people to close their eyes and hold on to the hands of the people next to you. And really, if you knew a person who had lost their life, a young person in particular, if you had heard of a young person that had lost them, their life, a young person in particular, but because of the divides, the racial divides, that we wanted them to come and join us and help us to do what we needed to do to be able to dismantle this and finally get rid of it out of human life. Regarding spirits coming into the room, when I did that, it's almost like a calling and you could feel the presence of all of these, I'll call them angelic beings or the spirit bodies of all those. And I felt that my son stood next to me, actually. And it was so palpable, this sense of people being in the room with you who were not in bodies like yours. And then afterwards, I just asked people to quietly pick up their things and leave without saying anything, to just quietly leave the room. And when we got out of the conference room, people came up to me and they said, how did you bring all those spirits into the room? How did you make sure that when you called them, they were going to come? I said, first of all, I didn't know I was going to do that. I heard it inside. And secondly, it wasn't me that was able to call them and they were going to come. It was all of our intention who decided that we wanted to be a healing force on this planet. And so if somebody came and let you know that they were there with you, then let that be your inspiration and your reason for doing the work. But that was the moment that I knew that for the rest of my life, I was going to be doing this work. That when my son stood next to me, he didn't say anything. I could just feel his presence. And it's almost like he brought his friends with him. Because my friend who was a friend of mine who was a part of the workshop joked, she said, Sean brought everybody with him, huh? And so I said, I think so. So I just wanted to say that we now, this work that we're doing, this conversation that we're having, what you're doing, Judith, what we're all doing, Jillian and Phoenix and everybody that's taking part in this, we all have the ability to bring those who are seen and unseen, who have goodness in their heart, who are about love, to change the way the world works.
And with that, I want to thank you again for being here, and I'd like you to please read whatever you'd like. So, as I reflect on my life, all 83 years of it, I feel like it is a big jigsaw puzzle finally fitting into place. For so many years, there have been so many questions. Why am I here and why are they not? As my career started developing, I was given the answers. Destiny made it for me to live, to tell my story. As I stand in a classroom full of students, most of them non-Jewish, I see in their faces a dream of a better tomorrow. I feel impressed with the depth of some of their questions, how straightforward they are, and how anxious they are to learn. What started for me as a singing career has become so much more. One of the students, a young man, came up to me and asked me to speak at his church. His eyes showed great sincerity, and I immediately said yes. Others came up to me to thank me for sharing that part of my life and expressed that they were glad that I was alive. From all of us at Liberating Race, we want to thank our friends of Jewish Heritage for helping us make today's episode. We wish all listeners of Jewish Faith Happy New Year. Lashana Tova, may you be sealed in the Book of Life. Act 3, Reclaiming of Reality. In many ways, racism is a technology. And when I use the word technology, it is something that can be applied to create an alternate reality. And racism is a way to create another layer of reality, a false reality around the body, simply through an idea and an ideology becoming almost a thought form living in the real world to be reckoned with. What the Jewish people encountered with the Holocaust is very much an example of that type of technology being applied to their identity as being something somewhat less than human. The healing that has to take place from something like that, it takes deep awareness, deep loving awareness towards yourself and your journey to breathe different life into that experience. And I think the story that we've heard from Cantor Judith is very much an example of that. We can all ask by looking at our individual wounds, the things we have individually experienced from racism and the idea of race existing in our world, to be able to heal from that collectively, we have to start healing individually. What you individually need, what healing modality could start to work for you, your own personalized formula for healing, growth, and transformation. Feel free to share that with us. Hashtag Brave Race Space. Liberating Race was produced by the Shift Network and was developed by Joy Donnell, Aliyah Mahone, and Jillian Shelley. Audio mixing by Timothy Dixon. Story producer A. Kirsten. Narrations performed by Chelsea Dawn, Megan Sass, Amy Kirsten, and others. Shift.